one of the reasons I started the business was I didn't understand why we were spending 1,000 times as much money to explore space as we were to explore uh, Earth and the oceans. We're listening back to Stockton Rush, the CEO of Everett Washington-based OceanGate, speaking in October 2022 at the GeekWire Summit. People are all about emotion, and we've had such amazing movies about space and not as many about the ocean. The ocean is a scary spot. And what I wanted to do with the business was just move the needle, get people excited about the ocean, explore the ocean, and discover what was what was out there. Stockton Rush's engineering decisions and his tolerance for risk, as reflected in his comments at our event, are getting new scrutiny after the apparent implosion of OceanGate's Titan submersible near the site of the Titanic wreck deep under the North Atlantic Ocean this week, killing Stockton Rush and four others on board. If we were going to stretch this new material in a new environment with people inside, we needed to know well before it failed that it failed. Our rule is we risk capital. We don't risk people. On this episode of the GeekWire podcast, we're joined by Alan Boyle, GeekWire contributing editor, who has been covering OceanGate for the past seven years. He tells the story of Stockton Rush and the company, discusses the tragedy of the past week, and contemplates what's next for OceanGate and the larger world of ocean and space exploration. From GeekWire.com in Seattle, I'm Todd Bishop. I'm joined this week by Alan Boyle, GeekWire contributing editor. Alan, it's good to see you. Same here. Do you remember when you first heard of OceanGate and started covering this company as a reporter, and what drew you to this company as a subject of your coverage? Well, I would go back even before I heard of OceanGate when I was working at NBC News. There were some expeditions to the Titanic uh, that took advantage of submersibles and remotely operated vehicles, and I covered that at NBC News. And who wouldn't want to cover the most famous shipwreck in the world and learning about all the history? I just uh, really found that story fascinating. And so... I think I probably got a news release from OceanGate or maybe somebody called up and said, hey, we're getting ready to build this new submersible called Cyclops 2. They had Cyclops 1 already and they've taken people, including Macklemore, uh, in their submersibles and submarines. And so they've been around since 2009. But in 2015 and 2016, they really started to work on this next generation submersible. And so on the history angle and the adventure angle and even the technology angle, it was very interesting to me because they were going to build this hull out of carbon composite rather than steel. And carbon composite was being pioneered for some space companies like Virgin Galactic. And so there were some pretty strong tech angles on that. So, you know, for a variety of reasons, who wouldn't want to cover this company? Of course, OceanGate is also based in the Seattle region, if you define the Seattle region very loosely here in the Pacific Northwest in Everett, Washington. So it was naturally a subject of interest to us. But I'm curious, are there parallels between your longtime space coverage, which you're known for, Alan, and the kinds of things that intrigued you about what OceanGate does? Yes, very much so on several levels. Uh, this is a commercial company that is trying to do something that has been done historically by large research organizations with lots of government funding. 
one of the people I was talking to today said OceanGate is a small family company. And so it's a small company trying to do what the, what the big companies and governments uh, have traditionally done. And it's also a very forbidding frontier, very hard to operate in the deep ocean, as hard as it is to operate in outer space, arguably, at least in some aspects. OceanGate and its CEO and founder, Stockton Rush, wanted to call attention to the discoveries that are still waiting for us in the deep ocean. Some people have noted that the ocean is less fully mapped than the surface of Mars, for example. And so Stockton Rush wanted to call attention to that, and, and that was one of the things that he wanted to do with the science as well as sharing that experience with citizen scientists and researchers to bring more attention to that and try to turn a profit as well, which is which has been very tricky for OceanGate. So yes, and the clientele is very much the same as well. A lot of the people who went to the deep ocean with OceanGate also went to outer space. Scott Parazinski is one of the advisors for OceanGate, and he was a NASA shuttle astronaut. Dylan Taylor is a venture capitalist who has been focusing on space ventures for a long time, and he, he went down on the OceanGate capsule. Hamish Harding, who uh, was on the crew that was lost during this trip, had gone on a space trip with Blue Origin last year. So uh, a lot of the same people are involved in that. And I know that Stockton Rush compared what he was doing to what SpaceX and Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin were doing on the space frontier. So a lot of parallels there. Stockton Rush, the CEO of OceanGate, addressed some of these issues in a talk at the GeekWire Summit, our annual conference last year. So let's hear now from Stockton Rush, part of his presentation at last year's GeekWire Summit. The Earth is really a water planet. I think we will probably all appreciate that. But I also uh, was a space person, and uh, half our uh, mission specialist clients who go to the Titanic have either been to space or are going to space. One of the reasons I started the business was I didn't understand why we were spending 1,000 times as much money to explore space as we were to explore uh, Earth and the oceans. And the belief is that there's far more aquatic life in our solar system and in the universe. And I didn't understand why we weren't exploring it. Part of that gets down to the media, and I'll come back to this, which is appreciated that um, people are all about emotion. And we've had such amazing movies about space and not as many about the ocean. The ocean is a scary spot. And what I wanted to do with the business was just move the needle, get people excited about the ocean, explore the ocean, and discover what was, what was out there. People don't appreciate the average depth of the ocean is 4,000 meters. And yet there are only a handful of subs, I think about five subs. Most are owned by governments, run by research institutions. There is no private access to the deep ocean. And yet there's all this life to be discovered. And as we go down to the Titanic, it's amazing the creatures we see on the two and a half hour descent, the most bizarre things uh, you can imagine. That was Stockton Rush, the CEO of OceanGate. And tragically, he was one of the five lives lost and... I can't even imagine what these families are going through. This entire conversation, I think, is in the context of the tragedy that's that's happened. But I think we also want to fully understand what's happened here and what comes next. And Alan, one of my questions for you is, to what extent did it 
come out in the years leading up to this, uh, the risk that OceanGate was taking with this novel form of submersible? Well, the awareness of the risk was ever-present. I know the reports have noted that uh, in the waivers that the participants in the expeditions had to sign, there were many references to the risk of, of death. And this is well known in the submersible industry is that if there is a breach, there's a, not a lot you can do at that point if, if you're in the deep ocean. In the course of developing Titan, there were lots of twists and turns that OceanGate had to go through just to try to get a system that they felt was adequately safe, but not to slow down their development timeline. If they could find a way to accelerate innovation, they wanted to do that. And, and so again, they were taking a page from the spaceflight industry and trying to trying to advance the ball. You know, the carbon composite hull was a big challenge for them. They worked with advisors and developed one hole, and then during testing, they found that this hole could not be could not be rated as safe at the depths that they were planning to go to for the Titanic. And so they had to throw out that hole and have a new one built to aerospace standards. And and so this was a controversy. Uh, one of the people in the course of the development was uh, dismissed, and in his counterclaim noted that uh, he had big concerns about the safety specifically of the hull and that happened before OceanGate retooled the hull so I'm sure that's going to be a big debate it's already a big debate because it appears that the accident was caused by a catastrophic collapse of the hull and I, I can only imagine how that could happen but I'm sure once the hull gave way because of the characteristics of carbon composite, it would not have taken long for that breakup to just totally destroy everything in an implosion at those pressures that existed in the deep ocean. Stockton Rush, the CEO of OceanGate, addressed these issues in his talk last year. So let's listen to a little bit more of that. So to do this, we had to uh, use a different material. Um, titanium is the common. There's some, some high-strength uh, carbon steels that are used. I think the Russians use those. But uh, titanium uh, is, um, let's put it this way, carbon fiber is three times better on a strength to buoyancy basis than titanium. And underwater, that's what you care about. It's not strength to weight, it's strength to buoyancy. And yet no one had done that. And there are uh, certifying or semi-certifying agencies, the uh, Pressure Vessels for Human Occupation Committee that uh, handles hyperbaric chambers and submarines. You have the subsafe program in the, uh, in the Navy. These programs are uh, over the top in their rules and regulations, but they had nothing with carbon fiber. So we had to go out and, uh, and work on that. And one of the things I learned is, you know, when you're outside the box, it's really hard to tell how far outside the box you really are. Uh, and we were pretty far out there. So we have a, a carbon fiber hull, five inches thick, uh, and titanium uh, domes on the end. One of the things that I think a lot of people appreciate is if you're not breaking things, you're not innovating. Uh, if you're operating within a known environment, as most submersible manufacturers do, they don't break things. To me, the more stuff you've broken, the more innovative you've been. And this is a third scale model that we took to the chamber at the University of Washington and took it to destruction. Once you go over 6,000 PSI uh, in the Ocean Sciences Building, you can only do that at night. And then they get on the loudspeaker and they tell everybody to get out. 
And now I'm standing next to this chamber and we blow this thing up. It's the loudest thing I've ever heard. It shook the whole building, blew out all the pressure sensors, which I had to rebuy for the university. But it helps us validate an acoustic monitoring system. He alluded in that clip to the fact that there are these third-party testing agencies and entities. Do we have any sense for whether OceanGate actually leveraged these industry standard testing and certification agencies to verify the fact that the Titan submersible could withstand the pressure at 12,500 feet deep where the Titanic is? They did have the hull tested at a laboratory in Maryland for its ability to stand up to the Titanic depths. And so I, I have written about that, but OceanGate has faced criticism that they did not submit to the typical standardization process that shipping equipment typically goes through. And, and so that is something that's going to be a big question as the investigation of the accident and the implications for what's going to be happening in future exploration as those go ahead. I'm sure that's going to be a key issue is, is this going to have to be regulated? I, I, I believe that there's likely to be congressional hearings on this and there may be calls for new regulations or, or new legislation to address this. I'm sure that's going to be a result of this mishap. One of the other points that Stockton Rush made at the GeekWire Summit during his talk was the use of acoustic monitoring to listen for stress and strain on the hull. In the research found out that with composites, what you really want is acoustic monitoring. Strain gauges don't tell you a lot because they just tell you the deformation on the inner surface. When you're dealing with composites, uh, acoustics will pop and crackle, and it's almost like having an EKG. You can tell how the hull is doing. And if we were going to stretch this new material in a new environment with people inside, we needed to know well before it failed that it failed. Our rule is we risk capital. We don't risk people. So if somebody comes to me and says, hey, here's a, a new idea for the, the sub, if the end result of that failing is that we cancel a mission or we lose a little money, that's fine. If somebody gets hurt, then we go and find out a, a different approach. And with the acoustic monitoring system, we can tell if the hull has had some problem over time. Maybe uh, it was run into by a forklift and we didn't know it or dropped in its transport on its way to the East Coast um, because the pressure and temperature at 1,000 meters and 2,000 meters and 3,000 meters is always the same. And so if it's making noises at that depth that it didn't make on the last dive, then we can stop the dive, we can go up, we can find out what might have happened. Do we have any sense for whether that came into play in the catastrophic event that happened this past week? I don't think we know very much about what was actually happening. And, and uh, when you're in the deep ocean like that, you can't talk with the topside crew the way you could, for example, even if you're on a space mission, that radio waves don't propagate very well underwater. And so the best that they could do is send pings every once in a while to, to let the crew on the surface know that, you know, we're still okay. And so at some point, those pings stopped uh, an hour and 45 minutes into the descent of the Titan submersible. And so we know that something happened at that point. There have been reports that a top secret Navy monitoring network heard the explosion, or in this case, the implosion, not long after the sub was found to be missing not long after those pings stopped. And so they probably didn't have very much time to deal with whatever they found 
because of that real-time whole monitoring system. That was touted as OceanGate's solution to this issue of how do, how do we monitor safety, that the idea was that the pilot would be able to get a reading from the sensors saying, oh, there's going to be a problem with stresses on the hull, and so we better ascend. But in this case, uh, either they did not get that signal or they were not able to do what they needed to do in time to follow up on that signal. Next up, we take into account what James Cameron, the filmmaker and deep sea explorer, had to say about OceanGate this week. Technology moves fast. I need to move faster. WGU's competency-based education puts me in control of how fast I move through my IT degree program. I can accelerate my program by applying what I already know to my courses and focusing on the things I need to learn. Earn a respected accredited degree that propels your career in the IT field. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. That's after the break. Here is James Cameron speaking with Anderson Cooper on CNN this week. You know, uh, carbon fiber composites are used very, very successfully for internal pressure, pressure vessels, like let's say a scuba tank. And you can get two or three times multiple of what you could get out of steel or aluminum for, uh, for that type of pressure bottle. But for something that's seeing external pressure, all of the advantages of composite materials go away and all the disadvantages come into play. So if you're using a uniform material like steel or uh, titanium or ceramic or acrylic, um, you can do computer modeling with a high degree of, of accuracy and confidence. The second you start doing carbon composite or, or any kind of composite materials, you're introducing two materials that are in, in contact with each other, the filament itself and then the epoxy matrix that it, that it sits within. And at that point, you have degradation failure. So it, we always understood that this was the wrong material for submersible hulls because with each pressure cycle, you can have progressive damage. So it's, it's quite insidious because you may have a number of successful dives, which is what happened here, and then have it fail later. If I were diving in a sub that, that was fully certified, I wouldn't think about it. But even in my own sub, which had a steel hull, I knew that if I, if I dove several two or three times, it was probably good to go because you could cycle steel hundreds of times, if not thousands of times. But that's not the case with composites. So it, it's quite insidious. And that, I think, lulled them into a sense of confidence and, and led to this tragedy. But these are known things. So over time, this type of composite carbon fiber hull could become more susceptible. So that could have been a reason that it was fine on earlier dives, earlier submersions and trips to the Titanic, but over time might have become more susceptible to this kind of implosion. Right. Uh, one of the issues that just came up is the idea that this was perhaps the first dive of the season. We've seen some indications that that ship had been out there for a few weeks, but because of the weather in the North Atlantic, they were not able to dive. And this was actually the first opportunity that they had to dive during this current expedition season. And so some people have been asking whether the fact that they had done the dives in 2021 and 2022, and then the submersible was sitting there and there was nothing happening with that. It, it perhaps gave an opportunity for moisture to seep into the carbon fiber and weaken it. 
I mean, though, this is really uh, informed speculation, but it's still speculation at this point. So I, I'm sure that this is going to be an issue that plays a role in the investigation, the circumstances of the season's dives or the lack of dives. Obviously, Stockton Rush was confident enough in his decisions about safety to get into this submersible himself. What does that say about him? Have you been thinking about that this week? Well, he is a risk taker, but I think you're right that this is kind of the acid test for anything that is being used on the frontier is, is the CEO going to climb in there? And that's what happened with Jeff Bezos on the Blue Origin, New Shepard suborbital spaceship. Same thing with Richard Branson on Virgin Galactic and same thing with Stockton Rush. But I think that he's been on almost, if not all, of the expeditions. And so it does indicate that he had a lot of faith in the technology that he developed. Alan, one of the points that he made in his GeekWire Summit talk last year was that the design resulted in part from the desire to get the right mix of people into that submersible not just the pilot, not just one adventurer, but somebody who could be there to explain what people were seeing. And also if someone wanted to bring a family member with them. The other challenge was all the subs were three-person subs. And Lee found after the first few dives, I'd go down and I'd be cruising around in Puget Sound and somebody say, hey, that's a, what's that fish? And I said, I don't know, I just make subs. Um, when you get a researcher down there who just gets passionate about the fish or the crabs or the, the shipwreck that you're on, that permeates the sub. It's, it's a must-have. It's like going to a museum with no labels and no guide. It's night and day. So we said, okay, you got to have a pilot. You got to have um, what we call a subject matter expert. And then you don't do the coolest thing you're ever going to do in your life by yourself. You take your wife, your son, your daughter, your best friend. And you, that's, so you got to have four people. He wanted to have that capacity. And that was the starting point for what led them to the design of the Titan submersible. And you saw that in the composition of the people who were there when it was lost. That's right. That's another issue that has come up in the wake of the tragedy is, gosh, the submersibles that uh, James Cameron took to Challenger Deep or uh, other submersibles, they're built of sturdier stuff. They're, they're built of steel. But because of that, the design requires that you can only have one or two or maybe three people in the chamber. And that was what motivated Stockton to go with carbon composite rather than steel for the design of the Titan. Steel was used in the Cyclops 1, so uh, they had done that before. And that's the same size and and had the same capacity, but it could not get anywhere near to titanic depths. What was it like to interview and interact with Stockton Rush? How, how would you describe him? Very open, I would say. And he did kind of compare himself to the people who were trying to advance the frontier at space companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin, and uh, just willing to talk and willing to acknowledge the problems that they were going through. They, they had issues in raising money. They had issues in dealing with technical problems. They had issues in working with logistics and getting the permission, for example, from Canadian authorities to, 
to take on uh, an expedition, they had to delay their dives for a year because of the problems that they had getting the go-ahead from Canadian authorities. And so I felt as if he was very open to talk about that. Now some of the things that are coming out in lawsuits and some of the criticisms, I'm hearing more of that now than I did at the time. And I, I always think to myself, well, shouldn't I have asked more about that? Shouldn't I have been more skeptical? But I felt as if he was being very open about the challenges that they were facing. And, and so it, it does hit me that this is the first time that someone who I worked with over the years as a source has gone in this way. And, and so it's, uh, you know, I've been in this business for 40 plus years, but I haven't had the sort of relationship with a source who has had that kind of death, uh, before. So there you go. Wow. I didn't think about that, Alan. I, I guess it's incredible actually that in all of your coverage of all of those space launches for decades that you haven't encountered this before. I think it speaks to the power of the ocean. And, and it speaks to the way that this operation was run. Uh, usually there are some layers. You're a journalist, you know this. There are lots of layers of people who insulate the people who are actually doing the work from the journalists. And so I can say that I had the opportunity. You know, I, I've covered uh, the Columbia tragedy and, and uh, I've covered the Spaceship Two breakup that uh, led to the death of one pilot and, and severely injured the other. But you're always kind of insulated from that by the, the layers of public affairs representatives and marketing representatives. But in this case, really, it was Stockton who was running that operation. And, uh, you know, he had people helping him, but it was basically all Stockton, which raises the question, now what? We will consider that question after this break. This GeekWire podcast is sponsored in part by Yale University Press. Are you concerned about the rise of AI and how it will impact our society? Every day, artificial intelligence presents us with urgent ethical challenges. How do we harness this extraordinary technology to empower rather than oppress? Nigel Shadbolt and Roger Hampson have written a how-to for building ethical machine intelligence. Their new book, As If Human, Ethics and Artificial Intelligence, is now available wherever books are sold. What happens to OceanGate? This is a company that's based right here in our backyard in Everett, Washington, doing some fascinating things that leverage this region's heritage in aerospace in part uh, for some of the materials they used and the innovations they had. But it was a small company. Yes. So what happens to it? That's a big question, and it's really too soon. I think that the people at OceanGate uh, sent their uh, statement out uh, at the time of the announcement that the crew was lost and said, we need some time just to grieve and to reflect on this. And they've really gone dark. The website isn't working. It, it wasn't really working that well during the search for the Titan crew. The office in Everett is closed indefinitely. I've tried to reach out to the company for more information about this, that, and the other, and they've always said, no, we, we can't say anything 
accept what's in that statement that we released. And so for a time anyway, there's nothing going to be happening. They still have two submersibles, two smaller submersibles. They still have a workforce. I think that, you know, the question is what's going to happen to the people who are employed. There's no obvious heir to uh, Stockton's role. Uh, Stockton really was the only person listed on the website as, as being in charge of the company. There have been other people I've worked with through the years, but some of them have gone away. Some of them have a much lower profile. It really is all Stockton. And so I think that does raise questions about what the long-term future is going to be. It's just too early to really figure out from the outside what that future is going to look like. Alan, what are the remaining questions that you're most hoping to see answered in the next week and in the coming months? I think finding out what happened, obviously, it's going to be difficult to do that. I don't know how much they're going to be able to recover from the bottom of the ocean. They'll probably try to piece together the data that they do have and and try to figure out how this happened and whether they'll be able to move on or whether they'll have to fold their tents and try to leave somebody else to figure out how to pioneer that deep sea frontier. And also the implications for other types of extreme exploration. What is this going to mean for commercial spaceflight? Will there be new regulations uh, relating to undersea exploration and adventures? And for example, uh, is there going to be closer oversight of the sorts of underwater trips that people take in Hawaii or Florida to to see the sites there? OceanGate had already planned to do an Azores expedition next year. And so I think that there are some questions about what happens to the people who put down their money, not only for trips to the Titanic, but for other trips that OceanGate had been planning. So Lots of questions, but I think uh, the big question is, what does this mean for extreme exploration and the role that citizen scientists and explorers have on the final frontier of space as well as the deep sea frontier? To your point, Alan, one of the points that came through in Stockton Rush's talk at the GeekWire Summit was that the Titanic was not his ultimate destination. Our colleague John Cook walked up on stage after the talk and asked him, what else he would hope to explore. If you could go and explore anything in the sea, I mean, there's a number of shipwrecks out there. Uh, I know the recent discovery of Shackleton's ship, the Endurance, is an example. What what ship would you like to go see or what would you like to go discover? Yes, so what I want to do is hydrothermal vents. Okay. Um, so for, uh, it's sort of amazing. One of the great discoveries of uh, the last hundred years in the ocean, uh, even on the planet, was this uh, discovery of hydrothermal vents about 30 years ago. So I was brought up saying everything depended on photosynthesis. These vents, they went and found out that, in fact, there's an entire uh, ecosystems that are based on chemosynthesis. The highest density of biomass on the planet are next to hydrothermal vents, and they do it without the sun, all with geothermal energy and the things coming from the planet. So the sun can shut down, and there will still be life down there. Um, so that's I really want to do that. We're looking to uh, potentially go to the Azores, where there's on the mid-continent ridge, and there are these vents with uh, two worms that are three feet long and crabs and shrimp, and they're all living in this amazing band. And as far as shipwrecks, I'd like to go see the Bismarck. Um, and the Bismarck is about 300 miles off of, uh, off of uh, France. 
um, but it's at 4,800 meters. And what's the significance of the Bismarck? Well, Bismarck is interesting. Like the Titanic, it died on its maiden voyage. Um, it was sunk by the British uh, and the Allies in uh, World War II. And so uh, it sank and uh, the uh, Russian Mir subs went there um, 30 years ago or so. It landed on a subterranean mountain. So it came down a ski jump. If you think of the Titanic, it came down and splat on the bottom. The bow dove into the mud, about uh, uh, 60 feet into the mud. But the stern came flat down and sort of scattered. The, um, the Bismarck hit this hill and there's a, a half mile uh, slide as it came down the ski show. And so it's in apparently in amazing condition, hmm. except for a few holes from, that the Brits put in it. I can't help but think just how sad and poignant those remarks are now in the context of what happened this past week. Right. And I think if there's anything you can take away from this week's tragedy, I feel as if it does bring a consciousness of the frontiers that are out there and the next time that we go to the frontiers, we'll do it better. Alan, thanks for taking the time at the end of a very busy week for you. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Longtime space and science journalist Alan Boyle is a GeekWire contributing editor. See the show notes on this podcast for his reports on OceanGate. Follow Alan on Twitter at B0YLE. And follow GeekWire.com for continuing coverage of the OceanGate story. Thank you for listening. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. We'll be back next week with a new episode of the GeekWire podcast.